0: Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Typically, we start our episodes talking about Craig's writing for the Florida Phoenix. We've mentioned his work in National Geographic, Washington Post, Flamingo Magazine, but a new one came across my Twitter feed. You can find Craig on Twitter, at Craig Times. You were writing for crimereads.com about retired spies on Sanibel Island. Yeah, I, I really enjoy reading the stuff
1: on Crime Reads. I'm a longtime fan of crime fiction, and we have quite a few uh, crime fiction writers here in Florida, you know, John D. McDonald and Carl Hiaasen and Tim Dorsey, and there's a guy in Sanibel named Randy Wayne White, who is a, he's got an interesting story. He was a fishing guide, and uh, then he decided to start writing thrillers, and he's made a hmm. huge success hmm. of it, and his main character is a guy named Doc Ford, who is a retired spy and has become a marine biologist, and he frequently gets pulled back into, you know, to help people out. And so, um, uh, so I wrote about how his inspiration for having a retired spy in Sanibel was there really are retired spies in Sanibel that, that, uh, a bunch of CIA agents retired to Sanibel when they reached retirement age and they, they ended up not liking the way that the Lee County Commission was treating the people in Sanibel that the Lee County Commission was very very pro development uh, and uh, these folks from the retired from the CIA liked their islands and this sort of natural paradise that it, that it was so they actually they started a newspaper they started an incorporation drive and they wound up leading Sanibel's voters in voting for to incorporate and one of them then became the first mayor hmm. i think it's the i think it's the only case of the CIA taking over a florida city <laughs> <laughs> on the on the books and uh, I mean, it was it's an interesting story. And a lot of people apparently didn't know it. So uh, I got to interview Randy Wayne White and interviewed uh, Porter Goss, who was the first mayor and later went on to become county commissioner. And so and a, and a congressman and then CIA director.
0: So it was a, it was a fun story to write. It really was. CrimeReads.com, You can learn more about that. And just up the gulf from Sanibel, you will find sarasota and sarasota is once again our sponsor this week on welcome to florida be sure to check out the bonus episode we recently recorded with our guy nate sweetman from visit sarasota.com looking at all of the winter activities that are taking place there from the Selby Gardens to the Ringling, so much going on. Myaka River State Park. Now, for me, this is the the real great time to be birding around Florida, and oh, certainly yeah. that part of the state is I premier, think, yeah. yeah, birding country. You've got uh, the migratory birds from the winter coming back to uh, coming back to winter in yeah. South Florida. So, uh, from Mayaka River State Park, we mentioned the celery fields which is a great birding location there in Sarasota bird key park, Oscar Shearer state park, where you can find the scrub jays, a a great time of year to be outside, walk on the beach, go to a park, do your canoeing, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. We're not going to be swatting flies and uh, sweating uh, uh, sunscreen into your eyes. Go to Moat Marine lab and see the, see the manatees and the dolphins and so forth. Yeah. Absolutely. Great chance to uh, learn more about Sarasota and everything that's taking place down there, visit sarasota.com. And again, a couple of weeks ago, check out the Welcome to Sarasota bonus episode of Welcome to Florida. And that takes us to this week's guest, Pamela Marsh, Executive Director of the First Amendment Foundation in Tallahassee. And they deal a lot with public records and media requests. But really, this is about uh, all citizens of Florida and and the work they're doing to keep government open, Not, not just the media like you and me, Craig. Right, right. And specifically, we're going to talk about Florida's government and the Sunshine Law, which was this sort of big
1: groundbreaking law when it passed. And I think a lot of people take it for granted, number one. But number two, they don't know what a struggle it was to get the thing uh, approved in the first place. Pamela Marsh is our guest. Let's talk to Pamela now. How did Florida wind up with its government and sunshine law? Was there a strong public sentiment for it or was there someone in sort of who took the lead in uh, in pushing it?
2: It goes way, way back. In fact, it goes back into the 1800s, but it really gets good around 1905. That's when Florida got its first Sunshine Law. But unfortunately, the way the Supreme Court interpreted it, it really had no teeth. So, you know, by the Sunshine Law, we mean open meetings. And what the Supreme Court did was say for the 1905 law, that only means formal meetings. So they can still get together informally, commissions, Mm -hmm. councils, make the decision and then just roll it out as a dog and pony show at their formal meeting.
1: Yeah. We'll 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 have the real discussion at the Waffle
0: House and then we'll do the dog. Or and pony as the show case
2: may the, be, yeah. I think it was Mendelssohn's meat market in mm-hmm. Miami. There you go.
0: <laughs> How common across the United States or uncommon are sunshine laws similar to Florida?
2: After that 1950 decision by our Supreme Court saying it only applied to formal Uh, meetings, there was a big movement nationally. A lot of states got involved and a lot of states had these open meetings laws before we did. In fact, I bet you can't guess which state had the first open meetings law.
1: Mm -hmm. New York. Nope. California.
2: Alabama.
1: No way. (laughs) Yeah,
2: crazy, right? (laughs) Alabama. So a lot of them had uh, various sunshine laws, but ours really came into effect in 1967. But that was after about 10 long years of work by a guy named J. Emery Cross, known as Red Cross. (laughs) And I've looked for pictures of him to figure out why he was called Red Cross. But all the pictures are in black and white. (laughs) I think it's possible he may have had red hair, but my understanding is that he started calling him that to distinguish himself from a political competitor that had Mm -hmm. a similar name. So Mm -hmm. that's why he started calling himself (laughs) Red Cross. But he was really the one behind the open government uh, sunshine law. He felt like people really needed to know what their governments were doing. And what the government was spending its money on. That was really important to him, too.
1: Why did it take 10 years?
2: It started at a um, fraternity, a journalist fraternity at the University of Florida um, with another guy named Buddy Davis. Uh, He was a great journalist professor, journalism professor at uh, U of F. And they had this fraternity of journalism students and Red Cross went there and started talking about how important this was, because it is important not just for the people to be able to participate, but for people who can't participate for some reason, that journalists attend and write about what the government is doing. Mm-hmm. So the journalism school um, and the fraternity pulled together some various state laws and that might work for us. And they gave him to cross and uh, he actually submitted this law, this bill, I think in the late 50s and kept bringing it up every legislative session because it wouldn't even get out of committee initially. I mean, one senator even said, we don't need this. My constituents like secret meetings.
1: (laughs) Yeah. When we choose to tell them about <laughs> So you yeah.
2: had a lot of trouble for many, many years. And there was a Senate version of the bill, but it really had no teeth. And Cross insisted on a penalty if officials violated the Sunshine Law. So he put in there um, that it would be a misdemeanor and you could be fined $500 and I think um, thrown in jail for 60 days. That was in his his 1967 bill. Interestingly, uh, Governor Leroy Collins comes into this as well. In his very first speech to the legislature after becoming governor in 1955, he told the legislature, the people of Florida have yielded to us no right to decide what is good for them to know or what is bad for them to know. I recommend that you provide by general law that all meetings of state, county, municipal, and other official boards and comm- commissions exercising legislative or administrative powers shall be open to the general public. So in 1955, wow. he's telling them that, and they don't get around to doing it until 1967.
1: <laughs> Was it because the the pork chop gang controlled the legislature back then? Was that a big, a big reason it. for it?
2: You got it. I wondered when the pork choppers mm-hmm. are going to come up. Yeah. So um,
1: Chad so may it, not know this story. He may not know about the pork chop gang.
0: Yeah. Give us yeah. a little history on the, on the pork chop gang and then their efforts, obviously, to, to close off what they were doing <laughs> from the general public and media.
2: Well, I think the pork chop gang had quite an agenda. They were mostly rural, mostly north central Florida legislators who really had a lot of power they were very much against sunshine. And then there was a Supreme Court decision that required reapportionment and fair districting. And, and so Florida had this big reapportionment uh, movement and the pork chop gang was disintegrated. Out
1: actually, of power, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: <laughs> after, after reapportionment. So that opened up a whole new day in the legislature. Urban areas were... More represented. And uh, we had a new governor, Claudius Maximus. uh,
1: (laughs) Governor Kirk. Yes. Yeah.
2: So he was the one who actually signed it into law in 1967. And interesting, Red Cross, the father of sunshine, said that when he sponsored the bill every year, he was the only name on the bill. No one else co sponsored or contributed. Wow. Until after it passed. But apparently, back then, after something passed, you could put your name on it.
0: Uh-huh. A whole <laughs> bunch of people, I
2: think like 14 people, uh, to credit with <laughs> them for passing the
0: Sunshine Law. <laughs> uh, prior funny. to to the Sunshine Law, and you said, talk about the, the 60s there when it passed, how pervasive were secret closed meetings uh, around the state?
2: Very. There were a number of, cases that came before various appellate courts. And the facts of those cases are just incredible. Lots of them involved school boards having secret meetings, um, closing meetings to decide the discipline of a boy's hair length in the 60s. Um, (laughs) Frankly, I think there's still a lot of hanky-panky going on. But um, in one of the decisions by justice adkins who grabbed all of the supreme court cases that had to do with open government he just he loved the issue and really made the law stronger in many ways he called that out he said there's no reason for this hanky-panky under the law and there should be no evasive devices around the law
1: the uh, you, you mentioned about there's still some hanky-panky going on. we've had quite a few People actually wind up facing criminal charges for violating the Sunshine Law. I, I can name like a couple of Sebastian uh, City Commissioners recently. That's a great story, actually.
2: <laughs> it is a great story, and it happened not so long ago. I think it started in April of 2020, and uh, there was a regular City Council meeting scheduled, and on the agenda for that Council meeting was potential reorganization of the council. And so many public citizens were interested in that issue. They were just overwhelmed with people calling in and saying, you know, and this is COVID has hit at September 2020, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. um, they want to be there in person. They want to participate somehow, some way. And so the city manager decides We can't hold this now. We've got to push this down the road. We'll push it to May. But three of the commissioners decide, nah, we're going to have our meeting anyway. (laughs) They go with their keys to City Hall. (laughs) They unlock the doors to City Hall and lock them behind (laughs) as they go in. And then um, they decide that because they have three, they constitute a quorum and they can vote. So they actually voted to remove the mayor, the city manager, the city attorney, and the city clerk. Uh And as they're doing this, somebody called the police. And when the police arrived, the three commissioners ran out the back door.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
1: This so is like aston- pretty good evidence of guilt. Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> yes, is astonishing yes. that that's 2020. I think there's a
2: judicial instruction about uh, <laughs> being a, a sign of um, potential guilt. <laughs> they were charged criminally, charged and arrested on June 16th of 2020, and they were convict. Well, I should say one of the commissioners pled guilty in exchange for cooperation. And the other two decided to go to trial and they were convicted on May 27th, 2021 at trial of sunshine violations and perjury to a police officer um, about what they had done. One of them received a sentence of 90 days in jail with $2,500 in fines. So they've gone up a little bit since Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Emory. Since Red Red Cross's day, yeah. day. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: The other one received six months in jail, and the same twenty five hundred dollars in fine. Both are required to pay restitution to the city of Sebastian of over twenty six thousand dollars. Wow! So they've appealed their criminal convictions. um, So we'll see where it goes next. Well, in the meantime,
1: they they were removed from office too.
2: That's so, part of the so, law. Yeah. So there,
1: there was a shakeup in the city government, but, but not the kind they had in mind.
2: <laughs> yeah. And interesting. One of the commissioners, you know, when they fired the mayor, one hmm. of the three commissioners um, named himself mayor. That, that didn't work out so well. I think we
0: either. call that a coup. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But he's not mayor. Yeah. Those are serious penalties. I mean, that's not a $500 fine and a slap on the wrist, you know, good, uh, good on the state for that. And then good for enforcing it. You know, Craig, we talk all the time about uh, regulations on the environmental side, and they are rarely enforced. And even when they are, they're so minuscule as to not be meaningful that, I mean, six months in jail and uh, restitution, that's, that's real. Uh, so that yeah. that is a a considerable deterrent. Who exactly does this cover? You you mentioned school boards. Uh, I was part of a, a local conservation development project here uh, in Nassau County, where I live, and the swearing in of this you know five person panel, all non governmental officials, the, a major part of the process was explaining the Sunshine Law to these. Citizens who were going to serve on this panel, which was going to then recommend uh, conservation land to try and acquire by the county. So, you know, obviously, state senators, legislature, the, the governor, but all the way down to school boards, it sounds like, and, and all kinds of uh, define for me who exactly uh, is under the sunshine laws in Florida.
2: The law set well, this is actually the constitutional mm-hmm. article, section 24. We have sunshine law in our constitution. So that's a great thing. The language there says all meetings of any collegial body of the executive branch of state government and of any collegial body of a county, municipality, school district or special district at which official acts are to be taken or at which public business of such body is to be transacted or discussed, shall be open and noticed to the public, and meetings of the legislature shall be noticed and open as provided in Article 3, Sub 4E. It's very, very broad, and it's also been interpreted to not just allow the public to be present, but to allow the public to be heard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's
2: where the public comment comes in. Yeah.
0: So, just <laughs> um, off the top of my head, I'm thinking water management districts, port authorities, fish and game, uh, Department of Transportation. I mean, that, that does cover a, a wide uh, measure of, of organizations.
2: goes even farther than that, Chad. Courts have decided that if a council or some other body to which the Sunshine Law applies, if they give or delegate, advisory authority to some sort of task force or board, if they're going to suggest to the board some sort of decision, those meetings of the advisory board mm. also have to be open to the sunshine. So there's this collateral um, linkage to mm. any advisory boards to those councils.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Visit Sarasota once again sponsors this episode of Welcome to Florida. And Are you following Visit Sarasota on social media? At Visit Sarasota on Twitter and Facebook. At Visit Sarasota County on Instagram. And they're sharing all these fabulous pictures of the the dolphin watches, the nature cruises, shark teeth tours, historic walks, ghost tours, the narrated trolley tours we talked about in the recent Welcome to Sarasota bonus episode. And if you're into the tours like I'm into the tours, how about this? Tour Siesta Key Rum. Nice. At Visit Sarasota on Twitter and Facebook, at Visit Sarasota on Instagram. Inspiration for your next weekend or week-long getaway to Sarasota County. Then who's in
1: charge of enforcing the law? You mentioned about the police arresting the Sebastian folks, but that's not how it normally goes, is it?
2: That's right. It's not. I wish it was. I wish it were more frequent that state attorney...
1: I'd I'd like to I'd like to see a lot of these a lot of folks who violate the law get hauled away in handcuffs. But
2: (laughs) as a former prosecutor, I like to see the law enforced, too. (laughs) But there are also civil suits that can be brought. Citizens can bring suits against those who violate the Sunshine Law. In fact, there's a very interesting one going on right now in Madeira Beach a Madeira Beach resident has brought a civil suit against city commissioners there i think it's city commissioners yep they met behind closed doors as alleged in the civil case mm-hmm. uh to fire the city attorney and hire another city attorney um Come on. and and the person who brought the suit also brought a sunshine violation back in 2017 mm-hmm. and when the city of Madeira Beach was fighting him in court that time, the city attorney who they wanted to hire was the city attorney back then. (laughs) So the allegations in the complaint are that this new attorney that they hired behind closed doors isn't a great advocate of sunshine law. Mm -hmm. I actually have, and I think I can play it and you'll be able to hear the language. This is them actually sitting at a dais, five commissioners, and I'll just play you the relevant part. I think you'll be able to hear it.
1: Okay. Is this during a secret meeting?
2: No, this is a public
0: meeting. I support, uh, including the bullet point, invite all commissioners.
1: I do too. No, I support it as well. And I think, you know, Commissioner Douthat, I agree with you in the past, it has been a, a problem. And I think part of the problem is that we all don't have each other's backs. And I think if we make a pact between us, look, there's nobody that can say there's a violation unless one of us gives out information that this was being discussed. So <laughs> over here, you're discussing, and then you have committed a violation. So, you know, I, I just, it's time to bury this stuff and start moving forward. We've got a, we got a pandemic in front of us. Okay. We've got a lot of work to do. So, this to me is a little issue and nobody's ever gotten a uh, hand slap for, for this violation in the past. So I think we just got to move forward and try to at least show a front of unity now. <laughs> nobody's
2: <laughs> really gotten a hand slap for a violation.
1: They and might you want to hear about the Sebastian, Sebastian folks. Scandal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and saying it's a minor issue, which clearly it is not.
2: (laughs) And if we have each other's backs and nobody talks that we've met and discussed something behind closed doors, nobody's ever going to know.
1: Yeah. Sound like yeah. sound like mobsters. <laughs> Troubling. Yeah, don't you don't want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah.
2: Maybe I'm misunderstanding this and the court hasn't decided it, but I, if I were the lawyer, I would think that was a pretty good piece of evidence.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a reason they call it mad beach. So <laughs> aside from meetings, what else does this cover in terms of emails, text messages, correspondence? uh, Beyond meetings, what does Sunshine Law uh, allow access to?
2: Good question. So we have two laws. Uh, We have the public records law, which is under Chapter 119 of the Florida statute, and it really covers all the public records. And then we have the Sunshine Law, which covers all the open meetings. And um, mirroring those, Under the Constitution, we have two sections, one for public records and one for open meetings. But interestingly, under the Sunshine Law, um, there's basically three things that are required. Prior notice, reasonably prior notice, so people know they are invited. Public appearances and, you know, public can be heard. And then the last one is meetings must be transcribed and provided promptly. There's a little bit of some fudging going on there, I think, um, because a draft of minutes is a public record. Um, So I don't want to conflate public records and sunshine law too much because they are separate. But in some places, councils are trying to say "The the minutes aren't final until we approve them. Otherwise, they're just the scribes perspective on the meeting, and we haven't approved that. But it is a record made in the transaction Mm -hmm. of a visual business. So in my opinion, that draft of the minutes should be available to the public as soon as reasonably possible, which would be basically when the meeting ends.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, hardly ever do they make any changes in the drafts minutes anyway.
2: Well, if they do, they make them shorter and they leave out information. So I'd I'd want to see both. I'd want to see, you know, the final and the draft. Mm
1: -hmm. Under 119, we get access to emails and so forth. Upstate agencies at least. yeah.
2: Right. But there's some hanky-panky in there, too. A lot of um, officials don't use their um, official account. They use their cell phones, their Mm -hmm. personal cell phones, and then they don't want to give it up. So You know, a lot of this stuff, it has teeth, but we have to be willing to enforce it. And that's where the First Amendment Foundation comes in. We're we're constantly trying to, you know, not just challenge decisions to not give records or to close meetings, but also to take it a step further and try to find ways to litigate it, because otherwise, it just stops and it doesn't go anywhere and nobody gets that slap on the hand.
1: Yeah. And the legislature every year seems to kind of chip away at the, the Sunshine Law, too. And then at 119
2: Amen. creating all kinds of exemptions. There are over 1170 exemptions to the public records in the Sunshine Law now. It's really not just blocking information to public citizens who need to know what their government is doing but it's placing a burden on state workers um, to have to redact all this stuff. And then the citizen has to pay for the time that they spent redacting and they get a piece of paper that's all blacked out and isn't worth anything. So we really have a problem with the number of exemptions. I know some of them make the Senate and legislators feel like they're really doing something to protect people's privacy. But there's so much information already out there. I I really just think it's all for nothing. And it's just putting a burden on the government workers.
0: You talk about protecting privacy. Give me an example of of a redaction of a public record that someone would find beneficial overall because it protected privacy.
2: Um, There are approximately 30 individual privileged, I'd say, professions that are protected. Judges, emergency room doctors, judicial assistants is one that's up this legislative session. There's 30 of them. They can have their personal information redacted from public records, like property records, et cetera, so that their address, their phone numbers, their Children's names, their spouse's names, all of that is redacted from the public record. And sometimes public photo images can be taken down too. Those to me are a perfect example of good intention gone awry. It gives the person a false sense of security because I don't think most people targeting victims are going to go do a public records request for an address and then go to (laughs) someone's house. Yeah, they're going to
1: Google it. Yeah,
2: (laughs) they're going to Google it or get it from social media or they're going to go to the places works, workspace, you Mm -hmm. know, where they saw this person that now they want to come after and target or when they're in a public place like Gabby Giffords was. So I think it gives a false sense of security. Um, It places a burden on the taxpayer. And to me, as a lawyer, I think it's providing an unequal protection of the law because so many professions aren't protected. Oh, that's um, a good point. And you know, teachers aren't protected. Um, nonprofit people aren't protected. Mm-hmm. People who work at publics aren't protected. I feel like it just creates an inequality and a hierarchy of people who deserve this privacy and those who don't.
0: Yeah, I thought you, you know, might say, you know, minors involved in some sort of sexual assault or, or, or abuse, but uh, not entire professions. Are, are police officers protected?
2: Absolutely. Yep.
0: Well, it's, this is not part of the Sunshine Law, but let's talk a little
1: bit about Marcy's Law uh, as sure. it, good intentions gone awry. How has that worked out? Don't tell, tell us about that and what, and what it is. It's
2: a mess. It's an absolute mess from the way it's enforced county to city to county to city. Um, whether the victim has to opt in to request the confidentiality or opt out and say, I don't want the confidentiality. Um, and therefore, the law enforcement or clerk's office presumes confidentiality and doesn't release anything, Um, that's one problem. We aren't getting as much information as we used to about safety situations. And the last piece is that law enforcement officers are now claiming that they are victims under Marcy's law and their names can be kept confidential if they're involved in a violent exchange That leaves their names completely unavailable to the public. And in my opinion, unaccountable to the public. I just, I find this situation where we've had so many police involved shootings over the last,
0: gosh, I will say 100 years. (laughs)
2: <laughs> a hundred years, I was gonna say and and now, you know, we see them almost every night in the news,, it, and yet
1: it, the, the police are claiming, I'm a victim, and you have to protect my identity and not identify me
2: and never under marcy's identify law me. right yeah. and and the problem is they already have so many protections. They have the um public information exemption that I just talked about. They have the law enforcement bill of rights that gives them immunity. There's so many things already that protect the police. And I did a little podcast with the sheriff and I asked him about that. And he said, you know, we run around in big cars with lots of signage and flashing lights. And we have these uniforms and badges and these weapons and everybody knows who we are. We want everybody to know who we are until something goes wrong. And then we're going to hide. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was really opposed to the application of Marcy's law mm-hmm. to law enforcement officers. Because this makes perfect sense. Accountability leads to trust in a community. Mm-hmm. And what do we need more now than ever in our communities with law enforcement? It's trust. Trust. So the idea of hiding information there is just that's that's one of the hardest things for me to swallow.
0: Well, and then that's not just a a Florida issue nationally on the police reform movement. One of the, the key tenets is to make the names of officers involved in shootings public immediately because the victims are revealed immediately and often wrongly accused or suspicion is cast on them while the officer who pulled the trigger or applied the chokehold it can be years or never that that individual's name is released to the community and that is not just a a Florida issue why now just for a second because I don't know the the first thing about Marcy's law where who's Marcy where did this all stem from and and, you know give me a little uh, 101 here backgrounder.
2: My best recollection is this was Marcy was a victim of a crime in California, and her brothers and sisters passed a law there, helped pass a law there. So there are a number of states that have different versions of Marcy's law. Some actually exclude law enforcement and say specifically that law enforcement should not be considered victims. When Florida passed the amendment to the Constitution adding Marcy's law, I believe the consequences we're seeing now were never intended. It intended to allow victims rights of access to the court process in criminal and juvenile criminal cases so that they could have their own lawyer represent them as victims. They could participate in the plea deal. They would know what the sentencing and they could attend the sentencing and speak at the sentencing. It gave them more of a role in the criminal process.
1: Something clearly needed in like the Epstein case, for instance, which we talked about on a recent mm -hmm. episode. Yeah,
2: correct. I think this was much more of a victim's Mm -hmm. rights case than a hide the victim's identity Mm -hmm. from the public.
1: We passed the law to help victims, but in the end it it hurt accountability because that's right. And Marcy's
2: law specifically says that it's self-enforcing that it doesn't need legislation to enforce it, but clearly the state is dying for some clarity and we do need some legislation to clarify the meaning of this right now. We've intervened, the the First Amendment Foundation has intervened in a case that arose here in Tallahassee. That case resulted in a strong opinion from the trial court saying law enforcement should not be considered victims, and there were many good reasons given. That decision went to the First District Court of Appeal, and they overturned the trial court's ruling. And so now right. we have a decision that says law enforcement is considered a victim when involved in shootings and aggressive crimes. And that has been appealed to the Supreme Court. But I don't believe it's been heard or set for hearing.
1: Well, it was, meanwhile, we have to cope with police reports where the victims names have been taken out and, and all kinds of other stuff like that. And in fact, and, a, you know, a lack of accountability. It's just a it's sort of a nightmarish outcome of what was supposed to be something helping victims.
2: And it is happening all over the state.
1: Let me ask you about um, Governor DeSantis holding a cabinet meeting in Israel. I wondered how that fit in with the, the Sunshine Law and the idea that people should get a chance to participate.
2: It doesn't fit in with the Sunshine Law. <laughs> and I'm there was a case, I think it's called Rhea, R-H-E-A, that was decided a long time ago by the Supreme Court, I believe, that said that a commission from Gainesville couldn't have a meeting 100 miles away from Gainesville because the people of Gainesville then couldn't attend. So I believe that was also a case that was brought to say that since nobody can attend in Israel that wants to, it's a violation of the Sunshine Law.
1: So did anyone sue the governor over that?
2: I believe so. I believe.
1: I'm pretty sure I didn't see him let away in handcuffs. I'm pretty sure I didn't see him let away in handcuffs.
2: <laughs> no, I think the First Amendment Foundation was involved in a lawsuit. I'm um, just not really sure how it came out. That was before my tenure.
0: Generally speaking, how is the DeSantis administration in terms of sunshine laws following them? We've
2: been doing at the First Amendment Foundation a bit of some research. We've done some public records requests of various agencies on various issues to see how they're doing, because we've received a lot of complaints about enormous fees being imposed and long delays in getting records so we thought, well, let's do some test cases ourselves. One of the ones we did was about the governors sending Florida law enforcement to the Texas border to help the Texas governor. It did take a while,
1: which Texas we, said they wouldn't pay us back for. Them, so <laughs>
2: that's hi. all. That's all We're, for
1: us. That's all our ours. Yeah, <laughs>
2: we are on the hook for it as Florida <laughs> taxpayers. Anna Caballos in Miami had written an article that she had gotten an invoice in a public records request from FDLE saying that they spent approximately $570,000. But we sent public records to FDLE, the Florida Highway Patrol, and Fish and Wildlife Commission. And within... Because they all
1: contributed officers too, right?
2: That's correct. Within 60 days, we had the records from all three of those. Some were faster than others. And the total number was $1.6 million, so over a million dollars more than was initially reported. That does not include fuel costs from the Florida Highway Patrol. They wanted to charge us $100 to get more information on that. And we said, ah, that's okay. But on the fees, I want to give you just a couple of examples There was a nonprofit early on in COVID who wanted to get information on the decisions made pertaining to COVID tracking because this nonprofit worked with a lot of farm workers who would be moving. So they did a a very nice public records request and they got back a invoice from the Department of Health. For forty two thousand
1: dollars. Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Part of the public records law says that agencies can't make a profit over public records requests. So that just tells you the amount of review and redacting that state workers believe they have to do before they can release records. We worked with that nonprofit and we were able to help them. Carve their public records request with a scalpel and get the information they needed for a much lower fee. But um, the fees across the state have been remarkable, and the delays have been extraordinary.
1: Well, and it's it, the fees are actually sort of a, a way of discouraging well n- newspapers from yeah. from getting what what they need for for their reporting.
2: Absolutely. The newspaper,
1: newspapers can't afford a forty two thousand dollar bill. No. The First indeed.
2: Amendment Foundation gets calls from journalists all the time saying, I got this, I did this public records request. Now they want, you know, $600 for me. I can't afford that. What do I do? And we help push back because sometimes the exemption cited by the agency is just not correct. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, the public records request can be crafted in a way that it's more
0: targeted, targeted yeah. and,
2: you know, limited in date range so that you do get more precisely what you want.
0: Well, just on the face of it, if it's a public record, who does it belong to? The public. I mean, there really should be no fee for it. you're not you know asking for someone's uh, private tax returns or the profit and loss statement of a you know a, a private corporation I and mean, if it's a public record it belongs to the public and and the public office is really only acting as an intermediary you know forget making a profit from it it shouldn't cost anything it's mine you know if i want to <laughs> know what my counties, you know, expenditures were for, you know, I, I don't know what to, you know, construction cones on some project that, that, I, should that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I should be able to access Yeah, I should be able to access <laughs> that just because it's a public record. Uh, that That's sort of your job is to, you know, warehouse those things and, and keep them. But I, I know that's not the case. And again, that's not something that's particular to florida that's you know one of the the oldest trick in the book you either you know give people so much information they can never wade through all of it or you make the the cost so exorbitantly high that they they can't afford it and yeah or it's public record but it is really an attempt to keep the public from understanding the documents or or getting exactly what they're looking for
1: i'd I'd support i'd support a change in law so that florida residents get free records only people from out of state have to pay for them so they're (laughs) Since we're the taxpayers, right?
2: As a matter (laughs) of fact, um, I couldn't agree with you more, Chad, on that. And we've actually suggested to a senator um, some language that would waive fees for nonprofits, researchers, journalists, because this does happen. There are corporations that seek public records and then do solicitations to make money. So... (laughs) We didn't include that, but but nonprofits and and universities and media organizations, they shouldn't be charged fees. That's ridiculous. They're working to serve the public good and get the information out to the public who deserves
1: it.
0: And it's not like these costs are crippling state government. I mean, they can cripple a nonprofit or a media company. I mean, again, ten thousand dollars to the Ocala Tribune is a huge amount of money. $10,000 in the state of Florida is nothing. Not that those documents actually cost that money to provide. So, yeah, I mean, it has a huge,
1: well, it's all personnel costs, Mm -hmm. basically, you know, the, the amount of money it takes to, for somebody to go through with a black magic marker and color out all the redacted parts. Right.
2: Well, and we had the idea suggested to us from a caller who I thought was very keen she said, "Well, if the legislature is passing all these exemptions that's making it so difficult for governor, government workers to redact, shouldn't the legislature have to pay the fees?
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a citizen of Florida and uh, I don't find I don't like the what I was I think is going on at my city council. What do I do? How, how do I take advantage of the sunshine law?
2: Well, go to your newspaper. Lots of the public notices are in your newspapers, either online or in the print. They also should be noticed on the government body's website. But in any event, there will be public notices in the newspaper. Find out the time and go. Sometimes there's a form to fill out to speak. Sometimes there's not. You just get in line and you have a certain amount of time, usually about three minutes at the lectern to express your opinion. The other part about the Sunshine Law is that during COVID, first Governor DeSantis entered an emergency order. I think I have a timeline on that somewhere. On March 9th of 2020, Governor DeSantis issued an executive order, 2052, declaring a state of emergency. And then on March 20th, 2020, he issued an executive order 2020 69, which said local governments can meet their quorums by virtual communication methods. So, mm-hmm. Zoom or mm-hmm. teams, teams or, or like whatever. Mm-hmm. Prior to that executive order, they were not allowed to establish a quorum virtually, they had to meet in person. That gave the state of Florida this opportunity to try a pilot program. And I think it went pretty well. There were several counties who allowed public participation via Zoom very well. You can mute and unmute. People were able to participate if they had wireless, of course, but they also provided the opportunity to call in. There's call-in programs that allow Muting and unmuting as well. And so we've received a lot of positive support for allowing that to continue because, you know, many of our populations, the elderly, the disabled, they can't just drive down to City Hall and walk up to the lectern. So this gave an opportunity to expand public participation that we were really excited about. But June Executive Order 21101 invalidated all the remaining local emergency orders. So that went out the window. And now all meetings have to be in person. The public has to be in person. Quorums have to be established in person. And so that really lovely pilot program of extending to uh, virtual participation has gone down the tubes.
1: Has there been any sentiment for bringing that back?
2: I haven't heard any talk of legislation that would allow local governments to do that. So I think right now we're stuck right back where we were.
0: Pamela Marsh, Executive Director of the First Amendment Foundation in Tallahassee. Thank you so much for your time and the work you do for uh, the citizens of Florida and keeping government open and uh as honest as we can uh, hope for. Yeah, thanks Thanks for your time. Thank, this has been a very enlightening discussion. I hope I hope some folks learn from it.
2: Well, gosh, it's been my honor to be with you. And I hope that uh, I get to see you again soon.
1: By the way, uh, on a personal note, thank you for saying lectern and not podium. It drives <laughs> me nuts.
2: <laughs> I know, I learned that too. A podium <laughs> is something you stand on.
0: Yes. <laughs> Have a good day, Pamela. Thanks again.
2: You too. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it.
0: If you want to help out with the work that the First Amendment Foundation is doing, they are a nonprofit, and as part of your year-end giving, they would be very grateful to be included. You can donate, or better yet, become a member of the First Amendment Foundation. Visit the website www.floridafaf.org. Small outfit there in Tallahassee, only one other employee besides Pamela. They can use your help if open government is a passionate interest of yours. floridafaf.org give him a follow on twitter at flfaf craig you've been in in florida a long time working in the media covering government in one respect or another looking back you know over your 30 40 years doing that is government more or less open than it was and in which way is the pendulum swinging
1: um i think it's swinging more towards uh, secrecy because and and not for any sinister purpose but because a lot of people who are elected office think, well, this is really inconvenient if we let the public in here. We have to listen to them. And, they, you know, we, we can't get our jobs done if we have to stop and pay attention to what people are telling us or provide them with records. It just really interrupts the flow. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? That's democracy, people. Me- democracy is messy. But you're working on our dime. You're working for us taxpayers. You need to be a- responsive to what the taxpayers want, the questions they have to ask and that kind of thing. And it seems like every time somebody new gets elected, they they need to relearn that lesson all over again. And not just in not just in Sebastian, where they actually got hauled away in handcuffs. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping that would have been, made a much bigger splash in the media so that people could see that and go, oh, we should hold public
0: meetings. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> This week's episode of Welcome to Florida, again, sponsored by visitsarasota.com. Be sure and go back to listen to our recent visitsarasota.com bonus episode where we talked all about the winter highlights covering the holiday season, New Year's, and into uh, January and February. So much taking place in Sarasota, outdoors, indoors, cultural events, outdoor events. You'll want to uh, be sure to listen to that bonus episode welcome to sarasota just uh from a couple weeks ago and begin planning your next weekend or week-long getaway to visit sarasota.com now craig how often do you find yourself filing public records requests
1: oh i used to file them all the time when i was when i was working for the times uh, you know we do we we actually turn into a verb did you 119 them yeah i won 19 <laughs> you know one <laughs> florida statute 119 means you know you get you get the records but um Uh, I have to, I have to add, by the way, Mm -hmm. that we haven't even discussed the entertainment value of public meetings, that, (laughs) that, that Florida public meetings are some of the most entertaining things you can see outside of, you know, now that the circus doesn't have animals anymore, Mm -hmm. that watching Florida politicians trying to hem and haw their way through uh, issues they clearly do not understand is very entertaining. I just watched a legislative committee hearing uh, on video from back in October where uh, one of the legislators was talking about, he's trying to understand why it costs so much to move gopher tortoises. And he actually said, does it, does it require special people with special little suits in a special little car and they drive up and they they used to have special little gloves on and a special box to put them in? I was like, I think he's thinking of Oompa Loompas, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. (laughs)